Hey, functional friends, Bren Vermeyer here. Welcome to the Holistic Savage podcast, where we like to talk about all things related to functional health, including functional medicine, functional fitness, functional spirituality, functional psychology, and basically everything in between. And of course, you can't spell functional without fun. So we like to have a good time on this show. Now, before we get started with introducing today's honored guest, I want to remind you all that the content of this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not at all intended to be a replacement for supervised healthcare. So be sure that you're working proactively with your licensed healthcare provider to make sure that all of your healthcare and medical needs are being met effectively. Of course, if you're interested in our functional services at Metabolic Solutions, you can send us an email at info at metabolicsolutionsllc.com. And of course, visit our website, metabolicsolutionsllc.com. Also, if you love this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you share it with your family and friends, like it, follow us, subscribe, review. It really means the world because ultimately, I believe that the greatest myth involves to teach people how not to need it. And the first step towards change is awareness and then education and empowerment. So that is what my platform is dedicated to. That's what this podcast is dedicated to, is helping educate and empower self-healers around the world so that they can overcome their greatest health objectives. So be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review and don't forget to share with your loved ones. So without further ado, let's get started with today's guest. Thank you so much for being here. All right, ladies and gentlemen and functional friends, let's go and get started with season two, episode 11 of the Holistic Savage podcast. It's my honor to welcome and introduce my good friends, colleague and peer Gavin Gard, who is a functional medicine practitioner and the medical director of Roots Integrated Care, which is his private functional practice. So Gavin's been a friend of mine for a while. I genuinely think that we could probably pass as brothers if we wanted to uh, pull that off. But allow me to formally introduce Gavin. So Gavin is the medical director of Roots Integrated Care. Gavin is a native to Friday Harbor as a sixth generation Islander. He graduated summa cum laude from Whitman College studying biochemistry and received his master's degree as a physician's assistant from the University of Colorado. His work revolves around helping his patients realize their optimal health through building resiliency and guiding them through the common challenges that get in the way. He believes the way to a happier world is by building healthier people. The main principle in his work is to make this model of care more accessible and affordable. So certainly that resonates with me a lot and this is why Gavin and I get along so well. So I had an amazing conversation with Gavin, primarily centering around TBIs, concussions, brain injuries, and the resulting neuroinflammation that can often complicate health programs. So without further ado, let's get started with the episode. Thank you for being here. Mr. Gavin Gard, welcome to the Holistic Savage podcast, where we like to talk about all things related to functional medicine and holistic health. So I'm super excited to have you on. I genuinely feel like we could probably pass as brothers. 
so I think this is a, almost like an overdue conversation, but I'm really excited to dive in. We're going to be talking about uh, brain injuries and neuroinflammation and all of that good stuff. So welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So Gavin, you know, I know you're, you're a physician's assistant, correct? That's like your credential in your, in your background or? Yeah. So physician assistant, um, I went to a three-year program in Colorado, um, graduate program after doing undergrad. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty like in marketing terms, it's a really bad name, <laughs> like physician assistant. It's a really bad name for what we do. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, they may change the name to like something like physician associate just to like better um, describe what we do. So yeah, that's my background. Um, certified nutritionist and then, you know, have some various functional medicine training. Also. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, hey, you is still like pick, uh, picking fun at myself. My background is bro science. So, you know, it's just like, <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> it's all good. You know, and that's kind of a big part of it with uh, the functional integrative modalities is there, there are no, there's people don't get this, but there's no such thing as a doctor of functional medicine like that, that credential doesn't exist yet. And so, yeah. You know, I don't think people get that. And yes, you know, I think the industry is kind of, kind of dominated by doctors. But that's changing a lot because there's a very different um, style of different backgrounds. And what I love about our industry is the diversity of it. You know, diversity is the richness of all life, right? We love richness and, and diversity in the microbiota. And same thing with our industry of we have every type of background, whether it's personal training or health coaching or whatever it is. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what steered you into the functional medicine industry to kind of start as we work our way towards, towards brain damage and stuff. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I'm an anomaly, you know, like there's a lot of functional medicine providers that had like this big health crisis and then they, you know, they sought out some functional medicine provider, got fixed and they're like, okay, I have to go down this route. Right. I mean, you kind of have like a similar story. Right. And that's what got you into it. Um, I don't really have that. I guess I've always been, you know, involved in sports and whatnot growing up, um, you know, fairly healthy. Um, I started getting into CrossFit. I guess that was my first introduction just to like fitness and health in general. I I did some coaching. Uh, I coached all through my undergraduate and a little bit in, in grad school as well. I guess that was my first introduction into like just helping people out in general. Right. And I feel like such a big part of what I do right now is coaching, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just coaching on like a different level, right. Mm -hmm. You're helping people make these drastic changes in their health. Um, and just kind of going back to what you said, like, I love, man, I I really admire how you, you don't limit yourself to like not being a doctor. And so therefore you can't help anyone out. Like you've taken this approach, a growth oriented approach to, be able to help at anyone that wants to seek you out and you're not limited by your training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to PA school. Um, I, I thought about going into med school. I'm like, no, I, I think I could do a lot with what I wanted to be as a PA. Um, and yeah, so I, I did some functional medicine training throughout PA school. You know, I woke up early every morning, try to study this out, try to see how this was fitting into what we're learning through PA school. And Man, I learned so much throughout PA school, but I feel like that was just only the beginning, you know, that only kind of gives you the the fundamentals to be able to put these complex pieces together. And, you know, I'm sure you know about the Dunning-Kruger effect, like, but the more you 
start to learn, the more you realize how much you truly don't know. And so I've just kind of taken this like internal drive of mine to just seek out more information, figure out how this complex physiology that is our body works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really be a specialist in any one thing in functional medicine, right? I've thought mm-hmm. about my, okay, I'm just going to work on the gut. But then you're, you know, you're missing all these other things that have a profound impact on someone's health, right? Um, so, you know, the last few years, I've just been trying to study as much as possible. Um, I just think functional medicine makes sense. That approach makes sense. And there's nothing wrong with conventional medicine. Um, it's just, uh, you know, how I want to practice is I want to take time with my patients. I want to see results. Um, and I just don't think that medication should be the only tool in our toolbox. Um, so long story short, don't have any fancy story, but you know, this model of medicine just makes sense to me. I've seen it transform patients' lives. And I, that's just why I wanted to practice and dedicate my career mission to. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm having fun already. You, you made a lot of valuable points there. Uh, and, and I love kind of dissecting like what is, you know, functional medicine, which is kind of this exploding paradigm and, you know, in a way sort of birthed out of uh, naturopathic medicine and whatnot. But the beautiful thing about, you know, whether we want to call it functional medicine or functional health or holistic health integrative, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like you could literally take integrative, functional, holistic, naturopathic, alternative, complementary, whatever, throw it in a blender and just see what comes out. But the, you know, one of, one of the things I really am trying to do with my career is, is kind of closing that gap between like the doctors and the health coaches, because the reality is if you are, you know, applying, you know, functional principles, well, it's like 80% lifestyle, environment, psychology, like meaning that you don't need a medical license to do that work. Like you need a medical license to prescribe drugs, perform surgery, make a diagnosis, whatever. But that, that is kind of opposite of the whole point of the functional paradigm. And in a lot of ways, I really believe functional medicine is what the practice of medicine was always supposed to be but we lost our way with kind of this bastardization with the rise of big pharma. And Hey, you know, the more I learn about the way conventional medicine operates and pharmaceutical science and all that, it's amazing. It's so impressive. Like, but, but that's not the problem, right? You know, it's, it's obviously we can't medicate or cut our way out of what is ultimately an environment lifestyle behavior driven uh, crisis. So no, I, I love what you're saying. And, and ultimately you know, I think uh, we, we have to use this more functional, holistic, all-encompassing approach that uses the psychology, uses behavior modification, environment, lifestyle as our main tools. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And so <laughs> I was just thinking when you were talking, I'm like, I think functional medicine kind of has a marketing issue. You know what yeah. I mean? So, oh, yeah. so in conventional medicine, when we, when we use the word functional, like functional dyspepsia, functional fill in the blank. It means it's idiopathic. In other words, we don't really know what causes it. <laughs> so yeah. if we're using the term functional medicine as a way to describe that we're trying to figure out what is the cause of the symptoms, that may be a marketing issue that we may want to figure out down the road. I just use it because it's a common term that a lot of people know about and it's a term that they're seeking. And I know like a common mentor of ours, Brian Walsh, Dr. Walsh, I've been kind of, I've been trying to adopt his approach of tying together this, what we know of conventional medicine. So conventional medicine is great at saying, okay, here's how the body works. Pretty much everything that we know about the human body can be attributed to the 
um, drive to make drugs and surgeries to fix a lot of these chronic health issues. And through that quest, we have learned a lot about the human body that we could then use through a functional medicine approach. So what I've been trying to do is blend those two together. And, and my training was absolutely phenomenal in learning all the physiology. I remember some of my classmates are like, we're never going to have to use this physiology of how the kidney works, this, this, and that. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, this is actually pretty important stuff, right? If you know this, then you can read any research paper. You could learn about any new and upcoming drug and you could figure out how that fits in. What are some of the potential side effects and then weigh out that risk uh, and reward uh, ratio. So that's kind of the approach that I've been trying to adopt, you know, through my early career uh, as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. And and I, I can't say enough good things about, you know, Brian's way and and his teachings and everything because you're so right and and unfortunately we live in a very polarizing world and 2020 has only made that much worse and so unfortunately there is this kind of polarization to conventional versus functional and I the whole time I'm over here scratching my head like versus like aren't we all kind of in the same crisis together shouldn't we all you know be working together to try to figure out what the hell is going on but I do I, I think you know Conventional medicine, I kind of describe it sometimes, I I hate politics, but it is almost kind of like the political spectrum where it's almost like conventional is kind of like the overly conservative to the point of being arrogant, you know, and, and dogmatic, but then you got functional medicine that if anything is too sensationalized and oh yeah let's just do three thousand dollars lab testing we'll find your root cause throw a few supplements at it and poof you just magically get better and it's like okay, (laughs) the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of this giant polarized spectrum here. Yeah. And so I'm so glad. I mean, we haven't even got down to the meat and potatoes, what we're going to talk about, (laughs) but I think this is a good conversation. So let's keep on rolling with it. You know, the whole thing about functional medicine and it kind of sensationalized everything to a point that it doesn't even become evidence-based. And I hate the word evidence-based because it's thrown out in both circles. And what does that mean? Um, what we were taught in my training is evidence space has three different factors, right? It's actually looking at the evidence, it's taking into consideration the patient's preference, and then also taking into consideration the clinician's experience. But we always refer to evidence space as being, okay, what does the science say? Never ever talking about what does a patient want and what does a clinician um, experience, right, in, in, the, in their career. Um, and w- with that said, I think we kind of throw out that term and um, we don't really know what it means, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating. So one of, my, one of my missions with, you know, the way I want to practice is to be cost effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you mentioned, you know, throw out a couple thousand dollars right at first, you know, we may do like, a, I'm not going to say any names, but we may do a fancy hormonal pro- profile throughout the month that we may do, you know, a couple hundred dollar GI panel. Um, you know, that's already, you know, probably $600. And then we want to add on something more. Now we're already up to a thousand. We haven't even run some basic blood chemistry. I know you're a big fan of that. Um, I, I learned from Dr. Walsh and his blood chemistry um, workshop, and I've been using that a lot for every single patient that I, that I work with. Um, we know that blood chemistry is a validated uh, marker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're so quick to just throw that out as not being very useful. Um, so yeah, that's one one big thing that I've tried to implement in my practice. How can we be cost effective? Not give someone thirty different supplements and four different lab panels. Um, 
and I kind of take it in a stepwise approach. Like, how can we focus on this, prioritize all the different problems, focus on one at a time? And I think that I think patients appreciate that one. It's more cost effective, um, and it's more sustainable, and they're able to implement that uh, yeah. a little bit better. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, like I, I like to say a lot, functional medicine isn't very functional if nobody can afford it. And yeah. unfortunately, I, I do already see this happening where I feel uh, health is is becoming a luxury good for the elites. Like that's that's kind of what's happening in our yeah. country, which um, is honestly kind of disgusting and appalling to me because it, it's so twisted and backwards from like what we're supposed to be all about. And and then there's kind of this moving, uh, this movement, a lot of functional alternatives, like they don't want to be confined by insurance, which I can understand and respect, but then, you know, it's just, it's all out of pocket. And so it's so expensive and there's new labs hitting the market every day and how, you know, then you do like how functional is functional lab testing. You start looking into the technology or the research or lack thereof. And it's like, well, just because we can measure something doesn't mean we should, doesn't mean it's helpful, doesn't mean it's necessary. And then all the while, like, what the hell does the person sitting across from us with eyes, you know, full of hope, like, help me, help me, like, what what do they want? And so I love what you're saying, because, you know, when I first got into this space, at first, I was worried that like, without a, a medical license, nobody would give me the time of day or whatnot, but I've really found it's kind of my greatest strength because I don't have that domestication and conditioning of how it should be or what it's supposed to look like or whatever. And it takes a lot of outside the box thinking because I've always looked at it as like, well, the health building process is largely psychology driven above all else. Um, and I always liked using objective data to guide that process. So, you know, the company I started my career with we had VO2 testing at our fingertips. We had, you know, body fat scanners that were highly accurate. We had, you know, blood pressure, we had blood testing. So it's like, well, use that objective data, but ultimately it's the holistic health building, health coaching process that needs to be client and patient centered. And I think we've lost that. We're, we're too caught up in the fancy test of the month and the fancy supplement protocol and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't think because something is new that we should just jump on it, right? Um, cause a lot of times we haven't actually validated that research for ourselves, Um, right. A lot of times it's pretty expensive. And, and what do you do with that information? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've learned so much through, um, gathering a really good history. What are their symptoms, you know, and how could possible lab markers play into that? If it doesn't make sense and you can't make a correlation, then maybe that shouldn't be a clinical target or priority for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a good physical exam is also important. Um, so I think those two together, and when you do labs, you should almost, um, predict what's going to happen. Um, so it's no surprise to you when you see, okay, they're iron deficient. Well, I already, you know, I already kind of assumed that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it only reinforces your treatment. Um, and you know, most of the time you shouldn't be surprised. Right. Right. Well, and, and that's part of the problem is a lot of, I think a lot of practitioners, professionals are kind of running a test to, to feed their own confirmation bias. And it's like, well, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so like a really good example, you know, we were chatting the other day on Facebook about mold, which, yeah, it's a huge thing. I do a lot of work around. Um, but it's like, you know, mycotoxin test is a good example where depending on which lab you go with, 
it's going to come back high for like ochre toxin or gliotoxin almost every single time. So if you're just like either a, a green practitioner or a client or a patient or whatever, and you know, you get this piece of paper back that's like you have high levels of this toxin coming out of your body and it's associated <laughs> with cancer and like everything bad, you're going to freak out. So I always kind of tease like, I think sometimes we're a lot better at making problems than solving them in this industry. So to your point, we have to put it all together. And I, I don't see a lot of that being done, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, like you said, a lot of these functional medicine tests are imperfect. Um, you got it. You got to take their history into, into account. Does that make sense with their symptoms that they're presenting with and with their physical exam? Um, and, you know, I agree with you. I, I do think I, I see mold mycotoxin being one of those sensationalized topics within this realm. Um, to be honest with you, I don't know much of mycotoxins. I'm not an expert whatsoever. I'm very new to it. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you could speak more to that. I've seen a lot of practitioners kind of use the mold and think that everything's a nail and then use their one hammer. Um, and you, you could speak more to this, but it does seem like mycotoxin treatment is like it's a rabbit hole, right? Like mm. you're talking about months and months of treatment before you get, you know, actual benefit from that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, you'd probably be better to speak to that point. Well, it's just one of those, I, I think ultimately the, the takeaway is, um, you know, we have to, I say this to my students all the time of like, it's that balancing act of not missing a healing opportunity where there actually is one, but not creating a problem where there isn't one. And, and that's such a, that's, that's difficult and takes, you know, good practitioners. So I think that was a really good kind of setting the stage, um, sort of like an intro into just the world of functional medicine. So now in regards to, you know, brain injuries and neuroinflammation, I'd love to kind of steer into that a little bit, because I understand you've been doing a lot of research into that subject. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know what got me into it. I feel like I have research ADHD, like big time. Maybe I actually have ADHD and I just don't know about it. <laughs> Maybe I need to do something about it. Um, but yeah, I've researched ADHD. I was like, Oh, let me just study this. So I spent a few months studying this. I'm like, why don't we ever learn this stuff in like school or, you know, functional medicine or whatever. Um, I was really surprised by some of the things that I found. Um, and I'm sure we could talk more about that. Maybe I could just touch on like the epidemiology or who's affected by TBIs. Um, so I think it's a lot more than what we think about, right? We think of TBIs, concussions of like just football players and veterans and, you know, and that was one of my big interests in studying this in the first place. You know, I, I have a heart for veterans that, you know, that they and their family sacrifice so much and a lot of them come back home and get inadequate care. Um, and a lot of their problems may be attributed to traumatic brain injury and the long-term uh, results of traumatic brain injury that go kind of poo-pooed in this conventional medicine realm. So every year there's around 2 million emergency department visits. We have about 280,000 hospitalizations and around of those 250, 280,000, about 50,000 die every year. Uh, we have about 3 million people affected uh, lifelong disability as a result of a TBI. So just that three out of what, that's probably 1% of the population, maybe a little bit less. So here's the scary thing though, is that we have this kind of antiquated grading system called the Glasgow Coma Score, the GCS score. And it has to do with your eye opening, your, your motor involvement um, and, and your verbal uh, response to some questions. Uh, and the thing is, is that what we classify as quote unquote mild 
actually has long-term disability associated with it. So 75 to 80% of all traumatic brain injury, TBIs, concussions um, are classified as mild. And what that means is after we rule out an emergency, we, you know, you go to an emergency room, if, even if you do go to an emergency room, a lot of times, you know, we have high school athletes, college athletes, uh, you know, people in motor vehicle accidents, they just kind of brush it off. We, we may be, um, just say, oh, there's no issue. I feel fine. They don't even get any care. All the while, there's background um, derangements and disruptions that are occurring. So after we rule out an injury with, let's say, a CT scan or some other imaging uh, modality, a lot of times we just chalk it up like, oh, it's just a mild concussion. Um, if people have, you know, symptoms weeks or, or months down the road, they may see a neuropsychologist, get a um, a pretty uh, lengthy workup. Um, and then from there, they don't get much care after that. Um, and that's scary, right? Because, you know, these people, we know from the literature that, and we could talk about this more, but a traumatic brain injury is a disease. It's not a one-time event. Um, and so from the mouse literature, um, and we're kind of limited in how we can do research. We can't just knock people on the head and then right. do a randomized control trial. Um, we could talk more about the quality of evidence. Um, but uh, yeah, so we need to rule out an, an emergency. Um, and we know from the mouse literature that inflammation can occur for decades down the road. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's pretty scary because a lot of people are not getting the adequate treatment that they deserve. Mm -hmm. A TBI is a disease, not an injury. That was, that was powerful. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating. I, I recently, I've never looked into TBIs or anything, but I, I know a thing or two about neuroinflammation. That's kind of big focal point. It's a, some of the stuff I do with mental health, obviously. Um, and what's interesting, I, I was just watching that movie with Will Smith, uh, Concussion, the, the football movie. Mm -hmm. I just watched that maybe like a couple months ago. And what blew my mind, and this is what's funny, and Brian says this all the time, kind of poking fun at how, well, you said it earlier of how much we know about the human body, how much, and it's like, it is amazing how much we know about the human body and yet how little we really understand, right? And, and uh, you know, Brian always kind of pokes at that of like, guys, I don't think we're even close to being right with some of our theories and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think he's so true because when I was watching that movie, with Will Smith and, you know, obviously dramatized, but nonetheless, Dr. Dude uh, going to the, the, you know, neurologist scientist dude and trying to convince him of like, Hey, you know, when there's repetitive uh, head trauma, there's some sort of inflammatory, you know, response and it causes this long-term damage and, you know, how uh, stubborn and arrogant, like, no, the science doesn't support that, whatever, you know, I'm watching this movie, like, wait, it was really just 10 years ago that we were like sorting out that like, Hey guys, wait a second. If you hit your head over and over and over that maybe can lead to like long-term damage or long-term degeneration. So I, I was just so blown away. Cause like we've lost common sense so much with our scientific pursuits um, which really disturbs me. So my point being like, if it was only 10 years ago that we finally accepted like, yeah, re repetitive, brain trauma can cause long I've I, I was like I've lost all hope like there's no hope for us you know yeah um, but so I, I think it's really interesting and I would imagine I'd love to hear you speak to maybe some of what we know about this because just from what I do know I can imagine okay you know some sort of 
injury to the head, whether, you know, you hit your head or whatever it is, car accident, so on and so forth. And you rattle your brain against your skull and you actually do, you know, it's like a bruise of the brain and that could activate like the damage associated molecular patterns and kind of that inflammatory cascade. But, you know, I'm curious to hear what, what you found with, you know, why is that? Why is it, why is it not just like a bruise that we get on our elbow or something of like, it just heals up and uh, why would it cause this like long-term inflammatory cascade and what could some of those like long-term consequences be, you know, the proper intervention really? Yeah. So kind of going back to my first point is I think that if someone was listening to this um, and, and there's, you know, they're actually seeing patients, they're a patient themselves. I think the biggest takeaway would be to know that a traumatic brain injury concussion is a disease. It can lead to long-term um, downstream negative effects, right? So what we know from looking at uh, NFL players is anywhere from 30 to maybe 90%. I, I know that's a big range. When I saw that, I'm like, how does how do you go from 30 to 90%? So it's looking at multiple studies. Uh, so a review of these multiple studies show that 30 to 90% of NF, uh, NFL players have something called CTE, uh, stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, is pretty much just neurodegeneration as a result from getting hit in the head over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, like, why shouldn't, why couldn't this just be like a normal bruise on your arm that goes away, right? Um, there's something that's uh, inflammatory um, or uh, resolution toxic, what we would call it, right? So the body, for some reason, there's some factor or factors that is impeding on the body's ability to clean up that inflammatory mess, right? And the downstream cascade, uh, that can be a result of it. The truth is that, you know, symptoms, you're, so you're, I'll, t- I'll just tell you, your brain is probably one of the most incredible organs out there. I mean, I know like the liver's pretty cool. The gut's pretty cool. Everyone talks about the gut. Maybe it's going to be the kidneys next. Who knows? Like, but the brain is pretty amazing. It should, it does have the capacity if, if your body is overall healthy to uh, ameliorate symptoms within seven to 10 days, right? It should clean up all the mess within seven to 10 days. You should probably wait a week or so um, before you start exercising, um, and as allow symptoms or as symptoms allow for. Um, so the reason that you, your brain may not be able to clean up that mess is kind of multifold. Uh, I would say one of the first factors is you have to get a good history in what is their state of inflammation prior to that TBI, right? So we know that, uh, herpes virus one, uh, HSV one, increases the risk of dementia by 20% in those with concussions or uh, uh, traumatic brain injuries. You could also look at genetic markers like ApoE4. However, I kind of question of like how clinically useful is that, right? I know Tommy, Dr. Tommy Wood has done some um, good work on the epigenetics of ApoE4 and a lot of these genetic markers that we always talk about in functional medicine and whether really make a big difference or not. I don't like to personally, I don't know how much saying that someone at risk of dementia increases by like 400% is going to help them out. Like it, it may depend on the person, right? If they're kind of on the fence of whether they want to carry out your treatment. Yeah, maybe it's a good idea to get some buy-in, but are you going to scare a anxious 20 year old male who is like coming to you for some hope? I'm like, Hey dude, by the way, your risk of dementia is like, 400% greater. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't know how useful is that, that is. Um, so you have to look at the state of inflammation prior to the concussion or multiple concussions. 
Um, and then we can start getting into like microglia and immune system activity. So this is one of those topics that, you know, was like so complex that I'm going to really simplify just for the sake of simplification. But in all reality, like we don't really know, like with pretty much everything about the human body, we're just trying to do our best with what we have. Um, so microglia, these are your brain's immune cells. They're very privileged to the, uh, to the brain. And in fact, they actually come from a separate lineage or like parental cells um, as compared to immune systems outside of the brain or in the periphery. So these microglia, they kind of tell who's good and bad. Um, if, if it's bad, of course, then they're going to uh, elicit an immune response and clean up that damage. Um, and that could be through a pathogen, right? So a virus um, or a bacteria or bacterial components that get into the brain after a concussion because we know that the blood-brain barrier opens up um, after a concussion. Um, or as you alluded to, damps or uh, damage-associated molecular pattern. These are things um, that our microglia or our immune cells identify as something that shouldn't be there. Like something's kind of going wrong here. Um, so if we look at like free uh, ATP, um, if we look at uh, other cellular fragments that don't look right, um, then our immune system, those microglia are going to mount an immune response. And that's good, right? Like you want your immune system to clean up um, that mess, but you don't want those microglia or those immune cells to be on all the time. Um, so then you look at, okay, so what's causing this perpetual microglial priming? Um, so priming is just a fancy word for saying activation. Um, so frequent and repetitive concussions are associated with this microglial priming and this um, subsequent um, inability ability to calm down this inflammatory cascade or process, right? So after you have one concussion, those microglia are activated for about a period of a month or like four weeks. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. While you are in that time frame, if you sustain another traumatic brain injury or a concussion, those microglia are now going to be primed for about 16 weeks, right? So you, start, you just start to think about these high school players who get a concussion and their coach slaps them on the butt. They're like, hey, buddy, get back in. This is your senior year. Um, and then they sustain another concussion within that same game, maybe even like a week or a couple of weeks later, they haven't done anything to heal their brain. All the while, you know, they're drinking Gatorade on the sidelines and we could talk more about the metabolic perturbations uh, of a TBI. If you sustain a, a concussion within that 16 week time frame, a third one, then those microglia might be primed forever. Um, we don't really know that's just some mechanistic data. Um, there's no medications for this. Mm -hmm. um, that's scary, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and you start to look at, you know, uh, I want to reference Tommy Wood again, but he's done, some, he has had some good papers if people want to look into this. Um, he's from, you know, home state at University of Washington here, but he's done some good papers looking at, 
you know, how do we look at these neuroinflammatory, neurodegenerative um, diseases? And the fact is that 95% of these medications that go into phase one, two, and three trials through the FDA to solve some of these chronic neurological conditions, they fail, right? So that means only 5% actually go through the market, uh, go through phase five and actually get on the market. Um, and then you have to question, do they even work and how much do they work? Mm-hmm. Um, so to summarize, we first have to look at what's their state of inflammation prior to sustaining that concussion. Uh, we want to limit subsequent and repetitive concussions within that healing time frame, and then do everything that we can to heal the brain and that inflammatory cascade. Um, and I don't know if you want to start talking about what we could do for that. Um, I'd be happy to talk more about that. Yeah, no, this is um, cool stuff. And we'll, we'll get into it because I mean, uh, one of my best friends has had a TBI and that's, you know, a big thing for her or one of my other friends recently had a concussion. And, you know, obviously the, <laughs> the most like unhelpful, but obvious takeaway would be like, all right, well, don't, don't hit your head, especially not more yeah. than, not more than um, once. And then of course, with, with what we're talking about with like the, the microglia activation and all of that, you know, you do start looking at like something I, I talk a lot about, um, because uh, the big thing I focus on is, is mental health and primarily how, you know, we're, we're really now looking at mental health through the, the lens of, of inflammation. And it's like, oh, actually depression is an inflammatory driven disorder, just like pretty much everything else. Like what a, what a thought. And, <clears throat> you know, I think some of the pharmaceutical science is really cool, whether it's all these new, oh man, the, the pharmaceuticals they're making of um, like TNF alpha inhibitors or the, you know, it's a lot of it, a lot of the drugs that they're cranking out, whether it's for depression or rheumatoid or um, some sort of autoimmunity, a lot of it is trying to block cytokines. Like they're currently, uh, they have IL-6 antibody drugs in phase two clinical trials for uh, treatment resistant depression. Yeah. (laughs) Um, which is interesting, you know, and then of course you, you hear or, or whatever that uh, autoimmune drug that I saw a commercial for, and, you know, they always whisper the scary things like while yeah. distracting you, but you know, it's like, okay, well, if we're blocking this, this cytokine signal, it's like, well, yeah, but what is, what, what do those cytokines released by, you know, the T helper cells do? And it's like, well, it, it initiates an immune response. So then it's like, oh, well, it may lower your immunity and make you more susceptible to bacterial infections and and all of that. So part of what I, I think, you know, obviously, so don't hit your head, but if you do hit your head, you know, how can we kind of calm down that inflammation uh, long-term? And of course you start looking at the standard American lifestyle and it's like just about everything about it is, is super inflammatory. So yeah, let's, let's start unpacking that a little bit of like, okay, so you, you did hit your head. You do have a concussion and, and, or, or maybe a more severe TBI you know, like, where do we even begin to support, you know, the body in its natural healing response? Yeah. And just to your point, it's like, it's easy to say to someone, oh, don't hit your head again. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, a doctor saying, oh, you have hip pain, just like, don't walk or don't exercise, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's more so for athletes, right? You look at high school athletes, they're three times more likely to get, you know, concussions than college athletes that may be due to their neck strength. Um, I I don't know. Um, but as far as what we can do, what are some clinical targets is what you may be asking. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so so what are some things that we can intervene on in 
helping that individual or patient um, heal from the long-term detriments of concussion. So I think the biggest one, as, as we've been talking about, is inflammation, right? Um, you have to address the source of inflammation. Uh, so we know within a 30 minutes that our gut barrier opens, right? It allows this influx of uh, lipopolysaccharides and other endotoxins and bacterial fragments um, into the brain, into the central nervous system because the blood-brain barrier opens. So normally uh, these things called astrocytes, they kind of wrap around the vas vasculature around the brain and they only allow certain things um, um, that are quote unquote privileged to enter into the brain, right? We don't want just anything entering in the brain. And that's why getting medications into the brain can be difficult at times, right? Because our blood-brain barrier is very selective in what it lets in and out. But after a concussion, that blood-brain barrier becomes damaged. It can allow uh, for bacterial fragments or inflammation from any type of GI or gut imbalance to cause central nervous system inflammation. Uh, you could also look at musculoskeletal health, um, right? If someone has chronic joint pain or whether that's uh, rheumatic or not, uh, meaning autoimmune or not, then that needs to be uh, uh, managed as well. Um, and you start to look at this bi-directional relationship between the gut and the brain, you know, so the vagus nerve goes through the corticopontine network through the brain, uh, and it feeds into this enteric nervous system of the gut, and that regulates digestive enzyme output, hydrochloric acid output, and then just overall motility. We see a lot of times that vagus nerve be can become uh, damaged after a concussion, uh, that could lead uh, someone to developing SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, but then also that GI imbalance can then feed back into the vagus nerve, right? Because there's both afferent and then efferent uh, tracts within that vagus nerve, and that can cause inflammation within the brain. And then you just got this downward spiral, right? So I would say GI imbalance, if they have that, then that is a big clinical target to address inflammation. Um, so as far as anti-inflammatories, um, so one of our friend's daughter uh, sustained a concussion. She was like, you know, should I start with ibuprofen or, or like, what should I do? And, you know, cause she was a mom who was caring for a kid and she wants to know what she should do. And so um, what I would do with my kid or if I sustained a concussion is I would actually hold off from anti-inflammatories for a period uh, of about four weeks. Um, we see that clinical trials using anti-inflammatories, um, NSAIDs, things of that nature fail um, actually in getting clinical improvement in a lot of these larger, uh, more severe concussion trials. Um, you look, I found an interesting research paper that I'll have to send you, but they were looking at should we use aspirin or should we use ibuprofen after that period of four weeks? Because um, the thing is you want to you don't want to limit inflammation with while the brain is trying to clean up that mess. But as we said, we don't want those microglia and that immune system to be on for too long. We want that to subside and start to, you know, not be always on, always prime. So after a period of four weeks, then we can start to introduce some of these anti-inflammatories. You could start, you know, if it's in your scope of practice, you could use herbals, herbal uh, bioflavonoids and anti-inflammatories. Uh, but the, we also have pharmaceutical um, approaches, so we can use, um, you know, over-the-counter aspirin. So there was an interesting paper that came out that looked at COX-1 versus COX-2 inhibition. So conventionally, we think of like as, uh, aspirin as more of a selective towards COX-1 inhibition, and ibuprofen as more of a selective towards COX-2 inhibition. And that just has to do 
with blocking specific enzyme that makes particular um, cytokines or inflammatory molecules. Um, so interestingly, a mouse model of Parkinson's um, had higher levels of COX-1 inhibition and that inhibition um, increased survival, right? Uh, and in a traumatic brain injury, we get a pre preferential increase in that COX-1 enzyme. Um, as we see from the literature, the aspirin may be better at targeting this COX-1 versus COX-2 um, enzymes in creating, in creating uh, more anti-inflammatory effects. Um, so that's one thing that I would consider is maybe aspirin for a few months um, after a month um, after a concussion. Um, we could incorporate a modified elimination diet, um, incorporate some fasting, uh, you know, what, whatever the patient or the individual can handle. Um, and another thing is addressing dysglycemia or high or low blood sugar, because um, we know that kind of sets off this inflammatory process and oxidative stress and whatnot. Um, so there's like, I'm kind of rambling here um, and I'm kind of being tangential, but you know, the fact is you have to see what is the lowest hanging fruit and then address that. There's just not one protocol that you could give to someone. <clears throat> yeah, no. Uh, and, and this is kind of one thing I love about just the, the functional approach is a lot of the same focal points are pretty much going to be the same, almost regardless of like what you're working with or, or what demographic. Cause like, you know, I really like what you're hearing. You're talking about microglia and blood brain barrier and, and, you know, the gut brain axis and a lot of the same stuff that I focus on a lot. Um, but, you know, TBI versus, um, you know, like mold is big cause of neurodegenerative disease or like with the, the microglial activation, you know, even just high cortisol can activate that IDO pathway and feed into quinolinic acid and beta amyloid formation eventually or whatever. So, you know, I think it's really interesting, like, you know, whether it's chronic disease or neuro neurodegenerative or TBI or, uh, or just, or just depression, you know, it, it kind of keeps coming back to inflammation. So then it is, it's like, all right, so how do we unpack that um, inflammatory picture and how do we monitor or uh, a lot of it comes down to adopting an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, right? And so, and the, the tricky thing that I, I don't think we really do know is, is yeah, like, well, we can, you know, we, we have these fancy drugs to block this cytokine or block this enzyme for, you know, the prostaglandins or, you know, whatever it is, we have all these fancy mechanisms that we can target, but we don't necessarily know um, what the repercussions might be longer term. So I, I like what you're saying as far as, uh, you know, identifying some of those key drivers of the inflammation, whether it's that gluten that they're shoving in their face five times a day, or, you know, their gut bugs or whatever else. Um, and it is, it's, it's picking that low hanging fruit uh, to just calm down the overall inflammatory cascade, right? And then we're at least setting the, the body up for the best possible chance to, to heal or at least mitigate some of the damage. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I like what you said about adopting an anti-inflammatory lifestyle because it goes into some of these other just simple habits of like, are you getting enough sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Are they stressed out of their mind? You know, we know that stress chemistry is going to be... Um, uh, at least contributing to further inflammation, uh, neurotransmitter imbalance within the brain, um, and some downstream negative effects. 
Um, I guess we could also talk about like this term, like excitotoxicity. Um, is that something that you've heard or? Yeah, let's 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 get into excitotoxicity a little bit because especially with the the microglial activation, and um, I, I I love so I have a thing I have a I have a thing for the kinurinine pathway, um, which is all about the the microglial activation and the main things that I'm looking at with that is like cortisol, LPS, mycotoxins, phthalates, I think TNF alpha maybe, um, but that pathway is really interesting and there's so many papers that show you know higher kinurinine metabolites and people with depression or neurodegenerative disease or this or that and um, quinolinic acid being a cool organic acid marker that is really an, a neuroinflammation marker or uh, neoterin, which is released by uh, activated macrophages. I don't know about microglia. I'm not sure how macrophages and microglia are super different, but. Well, how are you, do you, how are you measuring that? Are you doing like an organic acid test or how are you utilizing that in practice? Because that's something I don't, honestly, I don't know much about. And I'm just kind of curious in how that fits into this, you know, picture of concussions and, and neuroinflammation. Yeah. So the, with like the urinary organic acids, I mean, I dream of someday having like a serum organic acid test, but uh, the urinary, you can look at like the, some of those neurotransmitter metabolites, the 5-HIAA for, for serotonin mm -hmm. and uh, kinuric acid, uh, and then quinolinic acid. So kinuric acid is generally considered protective, although eh, depending on kind of how you look at it, uh, but then quinolinic acid is a NMDA receptor agonist. Mm -hmm. So it is yeah. neurotoxic, excitotoxic. And so you start getting into that, you know, and like the NMDA uh, receptor is such a big target for pharmaceuticals. Like what is it? Um, ketamine or something like that is, is the drug that targets the NMDA receptor. So yeah, I'd love to in, uh, well, I'll circle back to that one. So I'd love to, yeah, kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what is excitotoxicity and, and, you know, why should we care about it? Yeah. Maybe I can talk about the background and then we could kind of discuss on like some possible yeah. therapeutics. I want to hear what, if you have any additional ideas. So look at excitotoxicity when i was going through this tbi research i was specifically looking at whether a ketogenic diet could or could not help uh with those um struggling with the you know the negative effects from um concussions um and i kept on coming across this term excitotoxicity excitotoxicity i was like what the heck is this i've never i've never had heard of that prior to actually digging through this research myself and um so there's receptors um in your brain and elsewhere um, they're called N, uh, NMDA receptors, and it stands for N-methyl-D-aspartate receptors, and they're, um, they are, are responsive to glutamate and glycine. Uh, they act as a ligand, um, so these NMDA receptors, um, they're sitting on the cell surface, and when that glutamate pops on uh, to that receptor, it allows this influx of calcium, um, within the cell. And it also allows for sodium and potassium imbalances, right? So uh, across the cell membrane, you kind of keep a stable um, ratio of sodium and potassium. Usually sodium is more higher, highly concentrated on the outside of the cell. Potassium is more highly concentrated on the inside of the cell. Um, and when these glutamate or these NMDA receptors become activated as a response to glutamate uh, binding, then you kind of get this electrolyte imbalance. It also leads to that calcium influx leads to mitochondrial impairment. Um, so that's kind of that link uh, between excitotoxicity and energy failure, right? So your mitochondria are constantly producing 
uh, ATP and energy for your cells to do whatever they do um, within your brain. It's like neurons firing and astrocytes, you know, being healthy so that they can create a, a, a healthy blood brain barrier. Um, so the NMDA receptor leads to energy failure, it leads to this calcium influx and this oxidative stress that can cause havoc within the cell. Uh, we know this is linked with dementia, Parkinson's, Huntington's, all these neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so I mean, some, so some takeaways that we could take from this is a ketogenic diet, um, we could talk more about this, uh, specifically about ketogenic diet, but it has been linked um, mechanistically, meaning that we don't have any great human clinical trials, but we look at animal uh, models and cell cultures, it has been linked with um, lower oxidative stress, improved mitochondrial function. Uh, we, we may want to limit some of these exogenous excitotoxic compounds that may exacerbate this process. So things like MSG, uh, right? Aspartame, aspartame. How do you pronounce it? I, I never uh, know. Aspartame. Yeah. Aspartame. Okay. Yeah. Aspartame, um, calcium and supplements. You may want to limit, um, you may want to go on a like autoimmune paleo diet or some type of modified elimination diet, whatever, whatever the individual, um, is ready to do. Um, and you know, you could do a lot of this by just going from like a standard American diet just to like a whole food base, you know, maybe calorie restricted diet for its effects on the mitochondria and its energy production. Um, there's some research showing that magnesium can kind of put a cap on those NMDA receptors and prevent that whole process from occurring. Um, I would use magnesium three and eight. Uh, there is some preliminary evidence to show that that may be able to get through the blood brain barrier a little bit better. Um, zinc can do this. Uh, the Department of Defense has some papers looking at all these nutritional compounds. Because, um, right, because that's a big uh, population that is being affected by concussions. So zinc may show some promise uh, with this. Uh, King Jank diet, as I mentioned. Um, ketamine. Uh, I just briefly have saw this. I haven't really dug much into this. I know they're using intranasal ketamine for depression with some promising results. Um, and progesterone may be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I haven't used that just because it's not that progesterone may not be great for the acute phase. It may be better uh, more long-term, like a, a couple months after a uh, concussion or TBI. So those are some possible options that you could do or implement to a treatment plan to kind of um, decrease some of this excitotoxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, have you came across any research on ketamine? You know, I, I want to do a little bit more digging into it because there's so much that, that you can learn from looking at like, all right, what's the drug that, that big farm is throwing at this situation? What's that mechanism? And, you know, you start kind of unpacking that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I see them doing a lot of interesting thing with ketamine and you also hear people that are like addicted to ketamine and whatnot. Um, so there's certainly a lot of interest around that NMDA trying to either activate or inhibit it. It seems that the standard American brain, uh, tends to be very excitotoxic and, you know, then you start zooming out, try to figure out like, well, well, why, like, what is it about our our environment and our lifestyle that's, that's driving this, um, excess excitotoxicity. Um, what was I just going to say about that? Uh, it, so one of the things 
Uh, oh, uh, ketogenic. So with ketogenic and whatnot, um, something I have been digging more into and trying to unpack is so like ketogenic and then fasting upregulates autophagy, right? And so, you know, that's one of the things I've been looking at more is like, okay, autophagy for the sake of um, mental health, brain health, neural health. And so I would imagine um, kind of an educated guess, I'd imagine, you know, ketogenic and, and then also fasting would probably be, you know, good therapeutic for um, TBIs and whatnot. I've certainly seen a lot of great uh, papers about that in regards to like depression where, okay, so, you know, what, what I've seen from the literature on fasting, autophagy, and depression is pretty much like acute uh, fasting, like short-term fasting to upregulate uh, autophagy-related genes seems to have an antidepressant effect. But then, you know, if you go too long, it can have kind of the opposite effect, which I just look at that from kind of a common sense lens of like, all right, well, you know, short-term fasting might clear your brain out a little bit, but if you go to the point of being malnourished, then, you know, you might get depressed again. But yeah. I could definitely see how like ketogenic and um, fasting would probably be really, really good for uh, TBIs. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> you brought up the, uh, the word autophagy. Um, so I guess we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that because, you know, I want to, I want to learn from you as well and kind of get your thoughts. So man, every time I hear the word autophagy, you know, fasting and upregulating genes, I'm like, okay, well, how are you measuring this? Is this an even measurable thing that we can actually you know, measure uh, clinically, right? And then is it significant, right? And I don't want to say we need to be evidence limited, meaning that if we don't have this huge, you know, clinical trial, then we shouldn't use it. Sometimes we need mechanistic data to make informed decisions. And that's kind of how I came to my conclusion about a ketogenic diet. But like, I just don't know. In the short term, I think fasting could be very beneficial, especially for its role in kind of clearing out some of this debris within the mm -hmm. brain, kind of improving gut health as well, calm down any inflammation coming from that. But if you're doing fasting like long term just for the sake of autophagy, like because autophagy, <laughs> like that's your response, <laughs> yeah. I think you may not, I think you're going to get diminishing returns. And I would say, like, I'm of the staunch belief that we want to, especially in this obesogenic environment, and something that I've learned from uh, Ben House, um, he's a nutritionist from University of Texas, he's really great, but, you know, something I've kind of taken away from him, like, in this obesogenic environment, like, you're not going to win by constantly restricting yourself, you know, like, oh, most people's willpower does not allow them to fast all the time and constantly restrict at some point that's going to break um so how can we get them to be as resistant um or not resistant but um growth-minded as possible right um and a lot of that is building lean body mass and we know that is going to be beneficial for metabolic mitochondrial health whatnot and all-cause mortality um so I, I mean i just would question like okay Yes, maybe we could use fasting in the short term, maybe autophagy, we don't really know. Um, but for like the long term, does that make a huge difference in all that effort you're putting into it? Um, is that worthwhile? Like I cringe every time I hear Peter Atia doing like a seven day fast. I'm like, dude, that is crazy. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah, you know, and, and a lot of it too, um, you know, in, in our industry, we love to just spin down these rabbit holes and we get lost down them. And then we're, you know, uh, not we as in you and me, but just kind of our industry. Yeah. And then we're like preaching to the masses, all these just, we make it so damn complicated and it, it really doesn't need to be like with, with fasting and you know, cause yeah, keto and fasting. Oh my gosh. Like if you haven't ever tried keto or fasting, it's like, what's wrong with you. But I think it's all kind of silly, to be honest. I think it's really overcomplicated. So just like a week or two ago on social media, I wrote like, have you heard of that new diet where you sometimes just don't eat, you know? Cause it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's normal to feast and fast that you like three meals a day. That's a fallacious notion and idea that we made up just like everything else that <laughs> we talk about. But, you know, so to your point, um, you know, I, I, and especially when we're dealing with clients or patients, like we want to underwhelm, underwhelm, not overwhelm of like, yeah, just starve yourself and it'll, it'll heal your brain. It's like, well, not, not really, but if we can, um, you know, create the right environment or in the same thing, we could easily go down another rabbit hole of like BDNF and brain drive neurotrophic factor. And let's, you know, be out in sunlight and lower cortisol and increase exercise because hashtag BDNF. Um, and that's cool, you know, as we learn more about these mechanisms and, oh, well, this upregulates autophagy and this activates BDNF and it, that's all cool and everything, but the the consensus, the punchline always brings us back to like nature and common sense and ultimately more just like behavior modification of like, well, if you live a low stress, close to nature lifestyle, that's going to be primarily the most, you know, anti-inflammatory or, or, or health promoting so on and so forth. But, um, you know, but again, though, there are, there is something to be said for you know, understanding these mechanisms and, you know, how can we harness this for a short-term protocol and, and to move mm -hmm. the needle? Because a lot of this stuff, to your point, like we can't measure, you know, in like laboratory setting, yeah, but in a like clinical setting, no, you can't measure the autophagy related genes to see how well it's kicked on, you know, so we don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, if you're starting to talk about like, so I guess I would preface this by saying like, I'm nutrition agnostic. I think that's like something John Berardi said of precision nutrition. Like, and I think that's the best stance to take. Like you have all of these tools within your toolbox and you know which one you can use for certain people, right? Um, and as we were like talking before, if you, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? You'd start see a lot of these MDs who are just like, oh, they're, you know, well, we only use low carb, but we only use keto. And I think a lot of you're doing a lot of people a disservice because a lot of people may not be able to do that. It may not be the best thing for their certain circumstance. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm nutrition agnostic. Um, I just want to expand my toolbox and then just use it at the right time. And I'm obviously just, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, if you look at a ketogenic diet, I, I guess you first have to look at how do you, how do you look at like quality of evidence, right? Because I think so many times, in, especially in functional medicine, we look at mechanistic data. So mm -hmm. things are like cell cultures. Oh, this gene was upregulated with, you know, butyrate or glutathione or blah, 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 fill in the blank. And then we go straight to that. It's like, you know, a $75 supplement. Um, and maybe they've used that in clinical trials and have showed no benefit. 
I don't know. So what I'm saying is like, we have to look at the quality of evidence. And so specifically looking at ketogenic diet for traumatic brain injuries, the top of the tier in terms of the totem pole of evidence is going to be systematic reviews, meta-analyses, and randomized control trials. And there's some more hierarchy within that, but those are kind of the top tier evidence. And we only really have one good trial um, using ketogenic diets for those with traumatic brain injuries. It was done back in 1996. Paper uh, authors was Ritter et al. 1996. Uh, it was kind of a two-part study. They looked at, they first took a group of rats and they fed them various macronutrient ratios. Um, and then they hit them in the head. <laughs> it's awful. They hit them in the head. They took the brain slices and they saw which one had the worst outcomes in terms of contusion or bruising volume. Um, and they saw that the diet of the lowest carbohydrates had the greatest clinical improvement. So like, okay, we're going to use a low carbohydrate, pretty much ketogenic diet um, in human trials or in a human trial now. So they looked at. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. That like, I don't know how many people it was. It wasn't that much, but they had severe traumatic brain injuries. So these are people, you know, definitely in the hospital. They, a lot of them uh, had a coma. A lot of them had brain bleeds. So these are not people like walking to my or your clinic, you know, five years down the road with headaches or whatever type of secondary uh, injury from a, a traumatic brain injury. They fed them a ketogenic diet. It was a liquid diet through a nasogastric tube. <laughs> so not a regular ketogenic diet. Um, and then they measured a bunch of markers. And I don't really remember what the markers were because there's more or less no difference, right? So we have one clinical trial showing no difference with a uh, ketogenic diet for those with uh, uh, traumatic brain injury. Okay, so then you have to kind of go down one another tier on the totem pole and you start to look at animal research. Um, there's an author last name Prinz. Uh, he or she has done a lot of work in this area. If people want to look more into this, they can do some more research. Uh, they've looked at a lot of animal research and shows some possible improvements um, in the rats or mice fed a ketogenic chow. I, again, I don't know how this correlates to humans, but maybe a low carb diet may be beneficial. Um, I think the most interesting thing that we have is looking at seizures as a model for traumatic brain injury. So uh, ketogenic diets have been used since the 1920s for those with seizures and epilepsy, and it's been fairly promising for those with refractory or epilepsy or those that are not responding to medications. And then you start to look at a lot of the mechanisms that seizures and TBI share, and it's actually fairly similar. So we may be able to use seizures as a model to understand a ketogenic diet's beneficial effect for those with uh, TBIs. And then you start to look at another step down the totem pole is mechanistic research. So, so looking at cell culture studies, um, looking at enzyme production uh, and what happens with that. And there's some interesting things that occur when you feed these mice and, and uh, these cell cultures uh, ketone bodies and whatnot. 
Um, it shows some promise in upregulating glutathione enzymes, and that's the way it shunts it into the pentose phosphate pathway. You're making a bunch of NADPH, and that's used for a uh, reducing agent to make glutathione, um, and that kind of gets into the, the rabbit hole of biochemistry. Um, it may be able to blunt some of the cytotoxic effects and increase uh, BDNF. Um, <laughs> we were kind of laughing at that, but that's kind of like what we're left with when looking at uh, this specific question is pretty low quality evidence. Um, so for me, you know, like let's say Joe Schmo, he's, you know, he fought overseas. He was a, now he's a veteran. He's uh, came back and, you know, five years after his tour, he's starting to develop maybe post-traumatic stress, some headaches, some gut imbalances. Um, and, you know, we do evaluation with him. And the question is, do we use a ketogenic diet with him? This is four years down the road. Um, is we have to weigh that risk and reward ratio. And that's really everything that we do. Um, but am I gonna put him on a pretty restrictive diet if he's coming from a standard American diet? Maybe, maybe he's one of those people that does well with a lot of restrictions, right? There's some people that you give them, hey, black and white answers and they're like, they love it. Other people want more nuance. Um, so you just kind of, what kind of person are they? You have to assess that. Um, if he's not willing to do a ketogenic diet, I'm okay with that. There's a lot of other things that we could work on. Um, again, Dr. Tommy Wood has done some interesting research. So he studies, I believe, um, neonatology, um, baby uh, TBIs, uh, more or less. And so he's done some interesting research and in showing exogenous administration of ketone bodies. So through like ketone body salts and esters, uh, may be beneficial. So maybe we could bypass a lot of those restrictions put on by that diet and just give them some ketone bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, maybe that does the, the same thing. We don't know. And that's mm -hmm. where the art of medicine comes into play. You know, like we're never going to have all the answers. And, you know, you may have some people tell you, well, we don't have any clinical trials showing us this. And yeah, that's fine. That's when we have to become evidence informed and not evidence limited uh, by the fact that we don't have super high quality evidence. Mm -hmm. um, so you just ha have to take into context. It's promising. It's definitely not the end all be all. I would certainly use other interventions if someone was resistant or reluctant to, to try this out. Um, but it's interesting nonetheless. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love, I love kind of, I think, this is a good, valuable, honest conversation as, you know, we're just genuinely unpacking this stuff and, and showing how nuanced and imperfect it really is, because I don't think there's enough of that honesty in our industry. People just kind of make these claims, you know, of like, you know, this person's thing is that, and they just say it like it's law, it's truth. It works every time. The efficacy is on point. The data is on point. And in reality, it's just like, that's not true. There's so much about our theories and stuff that we just, we just don't know. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of it though, as we're unpacking this, it's like, again, you know, we draw it back and it, and it comes back to that person saying, and, you know, part of this, before I make that point, um, this is also where I don't know that health coaches always get like the, the credit they deserve. I, I don't know. It depends on the health coach, I guess, but 
a lot of it comes down to being a really good coach. Cause like you said about, you know, this rhetorical veteran, uh, patient or client, um, well, what, what resonates with them? What are, what are they willing to do or not willing to do? Uh, cause client compliance and attention span is probably like the worst it's ever really been, you know, the art of coaching in itself, I feel like is more difficult than ever. And so that's where, you know, all the mechanistic stuff is, is really cool. And I think there are some valuable takeaways. Like I absolutely know that there's going to be some major focal points of something I'd want to do with said individual, but at the end of the day, it's all about that client. So, so you mentioned John Berardi and it's like uh, precision nutrition was the first nutrition program I ever did. Yeah. Same. And uh, right on, I always uh, kind of struggled and, and wrestled with the thing is, um, you know, precision nutrition is all about, you know, one habit at a time, habit development leads to behavior modification, behavior modi- modification leads to physiological change, so on and so forth. But then the hardest part is just trying to get that person to comply with that one habit at a time and actually making it into a habit. So, I mean, there is no perfect recipe for that. That's where communicating with the client or patient of, okay, so, you know, we have all, what what we do know is, you know, sunlight and exercise upregulate BDNF that might help heal your brain. Like, let's get you out in nature. Let's get you out in sunlight. Let's, let's get you moving. Let's get you eating whole foods and get off a highly inflammatory diet. But ultimately, yeah, it, it comes down to that person of what are they willing to, you know, apply themselves to. Because um, unfortunately, I think a lot of functional medicine people are almost like so convinced of their own theory that as we're elucidating is kind of built on fragmented science at best. Um, but that's, that's their thing. That's their angle. And it's like, yeah. yeah. So this confirmation bias, you know, yeah. You know, you get into these camps like, Oh, well I'm paleo or I'm, you know, fill in the blank. And maybe that's like, I, <laughs> I had someone, a patient last week, she's like, well, do you believe in sugar? I'm like, what do you mean, do I believe in sugar? I'm like, well, she's like, is it good or bad? I'm like, well, my question was like, it depends. Why do you ask? And so like not having this like staunch, just entrenchment into all sugar is bad. You know, maybe let's say someone comes in with a traumatic brain injury. I'm like, yeah, your ability to metabolize sugar after a period of a week or two is diminished. Yeah, we should definitely, you know, reduce that. But let's say someone who is like 200 and 200 pounds and they're a male athlete and they do CrossFit, you know, two hours a day, they're going to have to have some sugar in their diet in order to meet their caloric demand. So I think we become so entrenched and people are going to yell at me that I'm like pro sugar now. And that's not what I'm saying As I'm saying is like, we have to be very contextual and nuanced in our beliefs. And we can't just have one protocol that everyone fits into. Right. Um, and so like, I'll just tell you a story. So like last week I was trying to like sift through like my practice management and like, you know, how do I work patients from like where they are at, where, how they start. And then like where I want them and where they want to be. And I was like trying to think of like, okay, I'm going to make a nice little algorithm. And they first do this test and this doesn't work. Then we do this, this and that in stepwise fashion. And honestly, I spent like two hours doing that. I'm like, cause I started doing this like mental game. Like, okay, this patient I saw a few weeks ago, they would go down and to the left and then, okay, then they would go right. And I was like putting them through my algorithm. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. They can't do that. And so 
long story short is I wasted two hours trying to make a silly algorithm that no one's going to fit into. And if I want to be a good clinician, I'm going to try to take context and in, into um, account. Um, but yeah, we can't just be so protocol driven and so um, just entrenched into the simple stories that we believe, whether that's nutrition protocol, whether that's a specific supplement, whether that's a test. Um, and that's honestly, it's like, there's at times when my short career, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is way too hard. <laughs> you know, you start to understand the complexity of everything. You're like, oh, I'm so stupid. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's a good sign. Maybe, you know, I'm just trying to be humble and try to, you know, figure it out myself. Um, but yeah, it's our bodies are, we cannot deduce it into a simple algorithm, a simple protocol um we're way too complex for that and I, mm -hmm. but i think the quest of trying to figure out is what makes you know good clinicians great and mm -hmm. the people that i really respect are not like that they're the people who understand and respect that complexity um and then try to do their best to take everything into consideration before giving someone a treatment plan yeah you know what's really funny about hearing you say that is i've been doing the exact same thing lately where you know, I'm looking at the the client life cycle, you know, from from the inquiry to the finish line and how do I, you know, pave the perfect path that's cost effective and caters to and you just can't do it. You just no. you just can't it, like I've been at the same place. And this is why, you know, so many there's another just random, random tangent, but there's so many freaking uh, business coaches popping up all of a sudden, like, yeah. oh, you can't possibly be successful in business for yourself. Let me tell you how to run your business, even though I don't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's like, that'll be $10,000. Uh, okay. uh, so there's all these business coaching coaches popping up and they all say, you know, packages, packages. And, you know, so a package of lab tests. I'm like, that defeats the whole purpose of bio-individualized, but okay. Um, so anyways, to your point though, I couldn't agree more And and that's where at the end of the day, there's so much to be said about just being, uh, you know, heartfelt client patient centered coaching, you know, how to be an effective coach. And, and I, I think that might be the biggest missing piece in our industry is how to be an effective coach. There's yeah. more coaching programs and certifications than ever before. And yet I, I feel like I see um, less effective coaching than, than ever before. But um, no, man, I, I mean, I love what you're saying. And it makes me think of uh, that quote by, I think it was like Voltaire or something of, you know, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature does the work or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. No, I know. So you work with a lot of health coaches, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the most profound and impactful, you know, first line people that we have in this dilemma of chronic illnesses and the astronomical financial implications it's causing, you know, so I'll tell you a quick story. So like, I, I learned the hard way with a lot of patients who I would just throw a lot at them. And when I throw, say throw a lot at them, it's, it wasn't really that much. Maybe it was like a nutrition program and some supplements. It, it wasn't that much they come back to me and they're like, I can't do all of this. Right. And then they're paying me, you know, for an hourly rate, which is a lot more than let's say a health coach might be to help work out these small little changes in kind of like a precision nutrition uh, manner. I'm like, this is not cost effective. This isn't meeting my mission. 
So I've been asking patients, I'm like, okay, how do you want to be coached through this? Do you want to make small baby steps? Because we can totally do that. We can work slowly. Or do you just want me to throw some things at you and see what sticks, right? Um, and, and to your point, like health coaching is, is I think is wonderful. And I think we can reverse so many of the awful chronic diseases, diabetes. I mean, just looking at diabetes alone, right? You spend $14,000 a year for a diabetic. I mean, the, the person's probably not going to be paying that out of pocket if they have insurance. But you look at a lot of these studies, just a 5 to 10% weight loss can mean metabolic benefits that if they sustain that can be lifelong. And that can, make, that can mean uh, being insulin dependent, being on an insulin pump for the rest of your life into maybe just being on metformin or maybe something, heck, maybe not even anything. And that could all be done with a nutrition coach. That's very cost effective. You're very uh, uh, effective with your time, money and resources. Um, so that's something that I would like to utilize in my own practice. And for those who are listening, who are health coaches, I mean, your job is, is uh, very impactful within this industry. And I would not say that just because you can't prescribe or whatever, that you're not making a difference. In fact, a lot of these things can be reversed um, with just simple, simple nutrition habits. Um, because, you know, long-term in functional medicine, I don't want my patients to be on a bunch of supplements and medications. That's just a short-term intervention. Um, but a lot of these things can be reversed with just some basic nutritional habits and lifestyle changes. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I always, I always like preach that. And that's, that's why we all need to be working hand in hand, trying to narrow that gap a little bit. Cause it is a 80 to 90% of the equation is just going to be the, the daily habits, the daily practices with the environment, lifestyle, psychology, and, and I'm, I'm with you. Like, I, I like that 10, 20%. I like to put together fancy protocols and look at yeah. data. I, I don't really love health coaching anymore. Um, but, but that's ultimately really what it is, is building yeah. those, those sustainable, you know, behaviors. So, man, this has been a uh, a really awesome conversation. Let's um let's maybe summarize a little bit of with like what would you or how would you summarize maybe in a few steps of um if somebody has had a concussion or a TBI, you know, what would be some like bullet point um recommendations or action steps as we wrap up? Yeah. Oh, um well, it depends. <laughs> I, I love when you like you would ask your teacher like professor that in school and they would come back with that answer. You're just like, oh, come on, man. Can yeah. you just give me an answer? Yeah. Um, but I mean, all honesty, it depends. So I guess some some basic things that you kind of have to make sure you hit is you got to get a good assessment, right? Like how many concussions is this? Is this number one? Is this number two or three within a year period? Like you got to get the timing of everything. Uh, we talked about what are the, what's the state of their health or of their inflammation levels prior um, to that uh, TBI or concussion. Um, you may want to get some objective measurements. Um, so concussion or CNS vital signs is a really good resource um, to get some objective data on processing speed, uh, memory, both long-term and short-term, um, things of that nature. Um, and when I talked to their representative, I think it was, it was concussion vital signs. It was free. Hmm. So if you're a parent, um, you can have your child in high school, or if you're a college athlete, you could do that prior to the beginning of your season if you're playing an impact sport. Um, so soccer, football, anything like that. And then if you sustain a concussion, then you have a baseline measurement to be able to 
see your progress or regress, right? So that's a good tool. Um, there's also some blood brain barrier antibodies that you can get like S100B and some of these other things um, that may be worthwhile, again, just to kind of get some objective measurements and, you know, measure again, six months down the road, see if those were able to um, improve. Um, you want to decrease inflammation, neuroinflammation. Um, that's done through addressing microglial activation. And we could do that through specific supplements, um, medications if needed. I would prefer aspirin uh, after a four week period for a few months over like uh, NSAIDs and, um, or excuse me, uh, instead of like ibuprofen or Tylenol. Um, uh, Chris Masterjohn has done some work of using glycine and alkalizing your urine with the aspirin to make it function a little bit better. Um, people could go check him out um, and he describes that a lot better than what I would be able to do. Um, you wanna look at any GI imbalances, that's a huge one because um, traumatic brain injury is gonna predispose you to GI imbalances and that's going to further uh, increase inflammation within the brain. Uh, other causes of inflammation, musculoskeletal health, um, you know, perspective and purpose. I know we did Brian Walsh's course and he gave, uh, proposed some good information about just having purpose and community is associated with decreased levels of IL-6, CRP, a lot of these inflammatory cytokines. And so, you know, heck, just, a, you know, finding um, community belonging and not being socially isolated is huge. And I know your big passion is mental health. I mean, you can make a huge difference just by whatever it is. Maybe it's finding Jesus or, you know, being part of a community. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like for you, but that's a huge thing that we kind of overlook because it's not fancy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're going to have to ask a lot of hard questions. Um, uh, kind of going down this line of some other things that you could look at. So you want to address excitotoxicity, uh, magnesium three and eight, um, you could do that with zinc, possibly there's some medications like ketamine, I don't use that and I'm not interested in using that. <laughs> um, you want to maybe avoid some of these excitotoxic compounds and found in the standard American diet. Um, you want to exercise in a way that's not going to exacerbate your symptoms. So maybe take a week off from exercising at all. Uh, after a week or so, maybe start to slowly incorporate some exercise as your symptoms allow for. If you're playing contact sport around the third week is when you could get into some, maybe some non-contact play as symptoms allow for. And if you're doing everything right, maybe after four or five weeks, you could return to contact play without any uh, downstream effects. What else? We talked about cytotoxicity, neuroinflammation. Another big thing is metabolic issues. And mm -hmm. so real quick, and I know we're kind of ending here, but after a concussion, your rate of glycolysis or your uh, utilization of sugar um, increases exponentially as, uh, as concurrently your oxygen utilization decreases. However, after a period of time, we're not really sure how long, maybe a week or two, you have a hypo metabolism of glycolysis. So you're not utilizing your blood sugar as you normally would. Um, so that may be where a ketogenic diet may come into play, utilizing alternative fuel source for your brain. Um, again, you got to weigh the, uh, reward, uh, risk benefit of a ketogenic diet maybe versus um, uh, ketone bodies uh, administered exogenously. Um, and then other than that, I just got to think about this stuff and just kind of use it with the person in front of you. And um, I know there's protocols out there. Um, a lot of the people I learned this information from have protocols. Um, I, I, I guess I'm just hesitant to, to, to utilize those um, with every patient that walks through the door. So 
Sure. Uh, but those are some key things to look at. Absolutely. You know, good, good summary there. And, you know, a lot of it, uh, you know, I think becoming that citizen scientist and taking ownership of your own health, uh, we, we can't always be looking. I, I'm a big believer, you know, healing comes from within, right? And we are our own greatest healers. And so, you know, I think one of the best things we can do as health professionals is, you know, educate, empower, and, and help cultivate that inner self-healer, if you will. Um, because too often clients, patients, they're, they're looking externally and it's, there's so much innate wisdom to be harnessed there. And so I think using the, the roadmap that, that we've created throughout this conversation, uh, while harnessing that innate wisdom and, and, you know, learning how to re-listen to your body, that's trying so hard to communicate with you. Uh, there's, there's no amount of biohacking gadgets that can replace that listening to your own biofeedback. So I think this was uh, a super great conversation. I I hope it helps people. And I I mean, either way, I had a lot of fun just selfishly. So Gavin, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I think it was great. You're you're a wealth of wisdom and uh, really great soul, great soul stuff going on there. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thanks brother for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Hopefully some people, some practitioners can utilize this, or maybe if you're, you know, a self healer, you can utilize this information. If anyone wants some of the information I present, I'd be more than happy to pass along the peer reviewed research papers um, that I found to be useful um, in how I make decisions uh, in my practice. Um, because I just think we all got to help each other out and um, uh, make this a little bit easier on, oh, uh, on each other. So yeah, thanks, Brent. Yeah. That's what it's all about. So where can uh, people find you if they want to learn more about you or get in contact? Yeah. So unfortunately I have a Facebook, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, re- I really wish I didn't, but I know it's like, you know, you gotta stay connected to the people, um, <laughs> and just kind of figure out what everyone else is, is doing these days. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I have a Facebook, um, people connect with me there. Um, and then I have a website, uh, just personallastname.com. So gavinguard.com. I put out some, uh, articles and just try to present this research in an easily digestible manner as much as possible. Um, but yeah, those are two ways to connect with me. You go on my website, you can email me, call me, um, try to be as available as possible for people. Perfect, man. Perfect. Yeah. We'll keep up the good work. Let's keep fighting the good fight together. And uh, I look forward to the day that our paths cross in person so we can hang out, my friend. Yeah, we'll have to do some deadlifts together. Oh, absolutely, man. (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) All right, man. Hope you have a great rest of your day. I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. All right. See ya. Yeah.